love having children in the service, and so we do not mind uh, noise by any means, and uh, the gospel that we preach is a gospel for our children, and Christ commands us to have faith like children, and so, um, so we, we are glad that kids are in here. For those that are staying in here, we do have some children's bulletins that they can use to follow along uh, with the message this morning, and they can kind of use the adult bulletin as the cheat sheet, if you will, for the, uh, the answers. We've been going through uh, just quickly before each sermon, our confession of faith, which is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we over the last eight weeks or so have been looking at what our confession says about Scripture. And and this confession, again, just by way of reminder, and I won't do this every week, was a confession birthed in adversity. Uh, it was it was composed by a hundred different churches. It grounds us. Uh, we're not some random church floating in the ether. We have a rich legacy, historical faith, if you will. And this is um, a confession that is uh, has its underpinnings in the Scripture itself. And so this is what our confession says, paragraph 8, about the Old and New Testament. It says, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular in, in providence, singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. So the God who inspired it is the God who's preserved it, okay? And are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues, speaking of the Hebrew and the Greek, are not <clears throat> known to all the people of God who have a right unto an interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they're to be translated into the common language of every nation unto which they come, that the Word of God dwelling uh, plentiful in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. So that's paragraph 8 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles with me, turn to the Gospel of Mark, written as we saw last week by John Mark, somewhere between 60, AD 60 and AD 70, around the reign of Emperor Nero. These Roman Christians were being heavily persecuted. Those are the, that's the circumstances by which this book has been uh, written. And, uh, and we find ourselves, last week I did not have enough time to preach all uh, 11 verses, and so we're going to look back again at verses 9 to 11 uh, together because uh, there are some significant things that we, should, that we should see and be encouraged by, be comforted by as it relates um, to uh, our faith, as it relates to the, um, the nature of Christ's uh, kingdom and, uh, and even as it relates to our confidence in seeing that our God is, in fact, a trinity. And so I'm going to read verses 9 to 11, then I will pray, and then we will work through this passage together. And so Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these words. He says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, 
He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. As we were just reminded in our confession, not only did you inspire this word by your spirit through human authors, God, but you have also preserved this word. You have kept this word pure in every age, God, so that we may have confidence that we are reading your word. And we ask that your spirit would illuminate it to us, would conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ, having spent time here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, like I said, we began to look at this passage last week, but we, we didn't really have enough time to, to see all the things that, uh, that we, we need to see in these few verses here. And, and so the, the baptism of Christ for us, it, it, preaches, uh, it preaches to us 2,000 years, if you will, beyond the event, beyond him actually being baptized. And so if um, so the, the title of this sermon, if you will, is, is what the baptism of Jesus teaches us, what the baptism of Jesus preaches to us. And if you notice in our text this morning that Mark, and, and, and I, as we were kind of setting the context of this gospel last week, I made mention of this, but, uh, but Mark's style, it's immediate. He says right in verse 9, it came to pass in those days. He just gets right, right to it. He moves from John, the forerunner, and John kind of being center stage as it, as it relates to, to John being a messenger that would precede the coming of God, right? Us and, and, and us seeing that, that Jesus is the coming of God, uh, it moves from that straight to Christ who came from Nazareth of Galilee, right? No, no questions about which Jesus that Mark is talking about. It's that Jesus. It's that Jesus, the one that the, the readers would have known he was testifying about. It's that Jesus that we looked at last week in Saul uh, as the Son of God. And, and Mark's gospel for us here, much like, again, what we saw last week, it doesn't document absolutely everything. That style is immediate. It doesn't document, for instance, John's conversation with Jesus before John baptized uh, Jesus. Uh, Matthew gives us this added detail in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. It says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Verse 14, And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Right, so we see in, in Matthew's account here that, that John the Baptist is saying to, to Jesus that he, John, is the, the, the slave, if you will, that needs to be baptized by Jesus, who's the master. And John knew exactly who Christ was, and so it was confusing at first, perhaps for John, to be the one that would baptize Jesus. And, and we should see, really, as John the Baptist saw, that Christ did not need, personally need, to be baptized. Right? Christ had no sin that he needed to repent of. One early ch church father puts it this way. As a man, speaking of Christ, 
He was baptized, but he, Christ, absolved sins as God, right? He, Christ didn't need the, the purifying rites of John's baptism himself, right? He, 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 Christ is the one that, that would make the waters holy, not the other way around. So, so Christ, what we see here, submitted himself in his humanity to fulfill all of God's law, to fulfill every jot and tittle of it. He, he's the fulfillment of, of the, the threefold division of the law, the civil law of God, the ceremonial law of God, the moral law of God that's summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. And just as Jesus was, was circumcised, and we see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, so does Christ receive this Jewish ritual cleansing that was known, that's known to us as John's baptism, and it's for the purpose, as we see in Matthew, the passage I just read, of, quote, fulfilling all righteousness. That is the reason that Jesus gives to John. And, and this, this really speaks to us, again, of... Uh, of Christ's humanity, the fact that Christ is truly man. God really did condescend to us in the flesh. As a baby, he really was circumcised on the eighth day. Following the forerunner, the ministry of of John the Baptist, who, who was baptizing people, signifying their need for God, Christ, in his humanity, subjected himself to baptism. And what is he doing there? And one of the things he's doing there is he's identifying himself as one of the people, right? He became like us to save us, right? But instead of Christ's baptism representing repentance from sin, which was the call of, of John the Baptist, right? The baptism of Jesus was an answer to the call, okay? It was an answer to the call for deliverance, Right? If John was pointing us forward, Jesus is the forward, he, he's the person at the, the tip of the finger there, and his, his baptism, his coming to John for baptism was an answer. It was an answer. Right? The baptism of Jesus declares, here's God and here's his kingdom. Behold! In fact, it's John the Baptist in John's gospel that declares of Jesus at his baptism Quote, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29. So Christ came, right? he answered John's message. Right? He didn't leave those that, that John the Baptist was ministering to without a Savior. He didn't leave them without a Savior. Now what's interesting is that at the baptism of Jesus we see the heavens open. We see the heavens open in our text. Our text set uses the word parting, which is a, a translation of a Greek word that Mark uses that literally means torn open. It means torn open. So the text literally translated, it says, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, there's only... One other place that this Greek word is used by John Mark, and it's at the crucifixion of Christ. 
Mark chapter 15, and we'll look at this more when we get there, but Mark chapter 15, verse 38 says, then the veil of the temple was torn, there it is, was torn into from the top to the bottom. Now stick with me on this, but, but this, the, the proper rendering of this word in the Hebrew for, for tear, or tear open, we also see in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. The prophet Isaiah, he prophesies this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, which is, which is to tear open the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. All right, what we need to see here is that the tearing open of the heavens is an act of God's power in the same way that the tearing of the curtain to the temple of the Holy Holies was an act of God's power, signifying to us what we spent a lot of time looking at last week, that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, that he is God who has condescended to us, who has come in the flesh to make things right. One commentator puts it this way. If, if the phrase tear open, it, it's that phrase that appears in Jewish literature for cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power, such as dividing or tearing open the Red Sea or splitting of the Mount of Olives on the day of the Lord, Zechariah 14.4. So at, at the baptism of Jesus, right, God's power was displayed. And, and God spoke from the split of heaven, and he called Jesus his son. At the crucifixion of Christ, the temple of the curtain was torn in two. At the centurion's confession, and you can go and look at this, Matthew fifteen thirty nine. the curtain of the temple was torn at the centurion's confession that Jesus is the son of God. So the heavens are torn open. The Father announces, testifies to Christ being the Son of God. The curtain, of the, temp, uh, the, the curtain to the temple of the Holy of Holies was torn in two at the confession of the centurion who identified Jesus as the Son of God as well. So we don't need to move past too quickly the baptism of Jesus. It's a... It's a significant event. It's the inauguration of Christ's public earthly ministry. But even more than that, it's an authenticating moment as it relates both to his deity and humanity and his ministry. So, so what more does the, the baptism of Jesus preach to us? What should we see? What should we confess? How should we live in light of, of Christ's baptism? And, and these are takeaways in your notes that I'm just going to move through for a few moments. And so don't stress yourself to jot these things down. But kids, you can, you can write these takeaways down in the bulletin that, that you have. And the very first thing that, that we should see um, in our takeaway is that our God is a trinity. Our God is a trinity. Right, wait, that's one of the catechism questions that our, our children learn in the back. Right? We, we ask them to name the three persons of the Trinity, and they respond, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we see right in Mark 1 the Trinitarian nature of our God. And while we don't see that word Trinity 
in, in the text, that specific word. And while we don't see the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture, right, we, we come to the conclusion that our God is triune because, as our confession states, it is, quote, necessarily contained. We see that in paragraph 6 of chapter 1 of our confession. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that we come to conclusions like this by, quote, good and necessary consequence. That's in paragraph 6 of their Confession of Faith. In other words, this is made clear, the fact that our God is a trinity is made clear by the sweeping testimony of Scripture. And so while we don't see the word trinity in our text, we see the evidences of the trinity in verses 9 to 11. Look down at the text with me. I'm not going to read the text, but as you're looking down, we see that Jesus, again, he's acknowledged as the Son of God, which we've established as a title of divinity. But who do we see say that? All right, we, we see, and, and we not, not just need to see this, but we need to really internalize this. We see the Father, again, he speaks this from heaven. He speaks it from heaven. You're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what of the Spirit? Again, you see the Spirit there too, but the Spirit descended upon him, descended upon Christ like a dove, right? The same Spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now, this is the same Trinity that Jesus commanded the disciples to confess in the practice of baptism, right? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Right? Our God, the Christian God, the God of gods, is a trinity. This is fundamental to the Christian faith. Our confession says that the trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. Chapter 2, paragraph 3. So think about that for a moment. Right, we're, we're dependent as Christians upon the Father. We're dependent upon the Father. We're dependent upon the strength of His might. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We're dependent upon Him making and keeping covenant. Genesis chapter 22, 17. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. We're dependent upon the Father's kindness in leading us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. We're dependent upon the Father's love in sending His Son to inherit the wage that our sin earned, John 3, 16. We're dependent upon the Father orchestrating our salvation before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. And we're dependent upon the Son as well, All right? the Son who's truly God and, and truly man. We're dependent upon Him alone for our adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We're dependent upon his righteousness becoming our very righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We're dependent upon Christ to hold us securely, never abandoning us or departing from us. In other words, we're dependent upon the Son to achieve and give us eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 28. We're dependent upon Christ's work being sufficient. Hebrews 1, verse 3. We're dependent upon Christ to hold all things together. Colossians chapter 1. We're dependent upon Christ to intercede for us. Romans 8, 
34. We are dependent upon Christ to rule, to reign, and to conquer his enemies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. We're dependent upon the Spirit. Right? We're dependent upon the Spirit to regenerate our hearts, to take our heart of stone and to turn it into a heart of flesh. None of us would confess Christ as Lord apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 37, 14, John 3, 5 to 8, John 6, 63, Titus 3, 5 and 6. We're dependent upon the Spirit of God as our comforter, as our helper, as our teacher, as the exalter of Christ to us, John 14, verse 26. We're dependent upon the Spirit to convict us of our sin and to convict us of God's righteousness, John 16, 18. We're dependent upon the Spirit to witness to us that we, in fact, belong to God because the Spirit is the seal and our guarantor of our eternal inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. We're dependent upon the Spirit to help us pray, Romans 8, 26. We're dependent upon Him in our sanctification, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. We're dependent upon the Spirit of God for our very hope, Romans 15, 13. So this isn't a doctrine that we just confess coldly because we want to sound orthodox. This is everything. This is everything. This is our lifeblood. Our triune God is everything, and we are utterly dependent upon him. Right? It's not just a defining characteristic of our faith. Right, we confess one God who eternally exists in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right, we don't believe in three gods. We don't confess that we have one God who presents himself in different modes at different times. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, one substance, and we are dependent upon all three persons every moment of every day. So our God's a trinity. He's a trinity. Secondly, Christ's baptism signified to us the coming of his kingdom. Christ's baptism signified for us the coming of his kingdom. At Christ's baptism, it was the end of the silence of God. And it was the end of, of the intertestamental period, that, that time between the cessation of the Old Testament and the inauguration of the New Testament. Right, the old covenant, the new covenant. Right, it takes us from Malachi's prophecy that I read you last week to the coming of God. Right, it's, it's the announcement that the long-awaited-for Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament had finally come. Right, he, he didn't come the way that people thought that he was going to come, but he came. And he brought with him a kingdom that was not like what people thought the kingdom would be. But the kingdom did, in fact, come with him. It was the crux of his message. Right, we see just a few verses later in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, quote, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of, the kingdom of God is what? 
at hand. Not far off, not some distant future. It's at hand. It's immediate. It's now. In light of the kingdom of God coming, what do we do? Christ says, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the coming of the kingdom of God that makes that possible. It's one of the things that's so new about the new covenant. Right, I've told you this before, but Christ and his kingdom, they are inseparable from one another. They're inseparable from one another. He brought his kingdom in a mustard seed form in the same way that the king of kings came as a baby. He even told us to pray that the kingdom would come, that is, be realized increasingly in this world. Matthew 6, verse 10. So Christ's baptism, it, it preaches this to us, that, that our God stepped into this world that he made, right? and as a result, the world is, 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 is being subdued, if you will, through this kingdom expansion endeavor that began publicly at the baptism of Christ Jesus. So Christ's baptism for us, one of the things it's preaching to us, it's teaching to us, is that he brought his kingdom. He brought his kingdom with him. The third thing, we see a message from the Holy Spirit of God, which is that God's righteous wrath is abated in Jesus. It's, it's kids, it's, it's satisfied in Jesus. God's anger, his wrath for our sin. In God's kindness, instead of, of pouring out that judgment on us, if you're in Christ, it's been refocused, redirected on Jesus. And we see that as a testimony here. All right, but we see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. All right, again, a further confirmation to the divinity of Christ, right? the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in unity as they all testify about Jesus as the Messiah. But the dove... It calls us back to the baptism of the entire earth in the days of Noah. Right? A dove flew and it didn't return after the flood, signifying that the wrath of God had relented, albeit temporarily. And after the baptism of Jesus, we see the dove testifying to the fact that God's righteous wrath for our sin will be forever satisfied. In Christ. Right? This isn't a temporary satisfaction for sin. This is an eternal, paid in full, it is finished sacrificing, sacrifice for sin. God's wrath, righteous wrath, holy wrath, forever abated in Christ Jesus. And for those of us that are in Christ, we know this. We know this. Or at least we should know this. Again, this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness to us through the Word of God being read, through the Word of God being preached, through the Word of God being memorized and meditated on. Bears witness that we belong to God. He bears witness to us that there's no more wrath for God's people, for God's elect, God's fierce and just anger for every sin that we've ever committed and will commit was laid on Jesus. Again, Christ 
Christ became the focal point of God's judgment so that we might escape his judgment. The the prophet Isaiah testified about this very thing. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us. Every, Every single person ever created. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then, and then here's the good news. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On who? On Christ. On Christ. Don't ever grow desensitized to that. Don't ever let that become so familiar that it doesn't stir us emotively. The Lord has laid our particular sins. Just hold that in your head for a moment. Your particular sins, my particular sins, the ones that were committed yesterday, the ones that you committed on the way here, the ones that you'll commit when you leave. The Lord laid those sins on Jesus Christ, and he judged him for it. That should humble us. That should evoke in our inward beings gratitude. Gratitude should evoke worship. should be the spillover on thinking about that, meditating on that, feasting on that. But that's not, that, that's not everything that happened. Right? If our sins were placed on Christ only, we would still be lacking. Right? That still wouldn't be enough because the law of God which reveals the character of God, it has to be upheld, right? The Lord doesn't budge or compromise His standard, His holiness, His name, His glory. We not only needed our sins to be forgiven, we needed to to keep the law forever, right? We needed to be truly righteous. We didn't need to be just zeroed out. We needed to become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21 which leads me to our last point. To be in Christ is to be the object of God's pleasure. It's to be the object of God's pleasure. Right? We see the Father's pleasure in the Son in verse 11. You're, you're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. Right? The Father is well pleased in the Son. There's perfect harmony. There's, there's a fixed pleasure And that means that if you are in Christ, if you share union with Christ, he's well pleased with you, right? We didn't just get our sins forgiven. We were given this foreign righteousness that the Spirit of God clothed us in the moment the Spirit of God converted us, right? So it's not just that our sins have been forgiven. It's not just that we've been zeroed out. It's that we have become the righteousness of God Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for that very reason. So there's a fixed pleasure. And the beauty of that is that there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing that I can do to change that. And for those of us that are truly converted, we don't hear the statement that I just made about not being able to change it and think, well, I have license to sin. I can do whatever I want. For those of us that are captured by Christ, we know in our bones 
the preciousness, the sacredness of the grace of God. We flinch at the trampling of grace. We feel gratitude for being reconciled. Not, we don't feel entitled. Right? Christ spilled his blood and he bodily resurrected from the dead so that we might be the object of God's pleasure. And the reason you can't change that, right, the reason that that is a permanent thing is because God's pleasure is focused, is grounded on Christ who's unchangeable and not you and not me. We're fickle. We're changeable. We'd mess it up. If our union with Christ, our salvation, our salvation finds its it's beginning and ending in Christ, and it does. That means that we're eternally secure in Jesus because Christ doesn't fail. He doesn't fail. If we have anything to do with our salvation, anything at all, whether that is getting it or keeping it, we're eternally doomed. We're doomed. Charles Spurgeon once said, no sheep of Christ will ever be lost. None that he has purchased with his blood and made to be his own shall ever wander away so as to perish in the end. It's Christ who's the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2, that will bring us all the way home. He'll bring us all the way home. So when the Father says of the Son... I'm well pleased. Hear that declaration being sung over you. Because if you're a Christian, that is how closely identified, associated your life is with your Savior. The Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we ask that that this would be a balm to a wounded, struggling soul, Lord. That we would be comforted by what the baptism of Christ preaches to us, Lord. And we thank you that you hold us, those of us in Christ, you hold for all eternity. And we trust you. And we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.